we're continuing to talk about money. Actually, we're preaching through the book of Luke, and Jesus is talking about money. And as we move through the book of Luke, we're talking about what Jesus is talking about. So if you're a visitor this morning and you think that all churches do is talk about money, you just happen to come on one of those Sundays. Luke chapter 16, and we'll start in the 19th verse, and we'll read through verse 31. It'll be on the screen, and I'll read. Hear the word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Actually, he probably didn't say it like that. It was probably some type of cry or scream. So if you can read it and in your mind imagine a tormented cry. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, All this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father God, now we thank you for this word. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this powerful passage and parable that Jesus gives Convict us of its truth and convince us, O God, of its message that we may be transformed by it and our minds may be renewed by the word of God. We pray, O God, that you would subdue every rebel power in our hearts that would fight against the truth of Scripture. And Lord, let us be conformed to the likeness and image of your Son through the hearing of this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week, we watched the wedding of England's Prince Harry and a biracial American actress, Meghan Markle. But what had so many people talking was Markle's mother, who sat alone as she watched her daughter marry one of the world's richest people from Europe's most prestigious family. A columnist writing this past week in the New Yorker writes, The day of the royal wedding, we could not keep our eyes off of her. 
What was she thinking as she sat in the pews of the 500-year-old chapel, the Westminster Abbey, enveloped in history and irony? I mean the mother of the bride, Doria Regland. A millennium of world-shifting encounters, of violence, and of romance, and of acts in between produced this scene. The 61-year-old Rogland, an American single mom who works as a social worker in Culver City, California, sitting in the opposite and equivalent seat to Queen Elizabeth II. One is a descendant of the enslaved, a child of the Great Migration and Jim Crow, and the other, the heir to and keeper of empire. Blood had long ago decided what life would be like for both, the house of Windsor on one side and on the other, a one-woman house. Well, you know, if anything, the parable of the rich man and the beggar is a challenge to the status quo of this world with all of its inequities and injustice. An unjust system which some benefit under and others suffer under. In verse 19, we learn about this rich man, a rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasts sumptuously every day. That's not a word we use all the time, sumptuously. But if you think about it, it means a feast fit for a king every single day. This is the image of an epitome of opulence. This is the epitome of mind-numbing wealth. Even kings did not throw feasts like this every day. They may, they may feast for a week where you, where you killed an animal and you had a large spread for guests, but Jesus is saying this man feasted like this every single day, and the idea is that the degree of this man's wealth is incomprehensible. And he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, they say you can tell a lot about a person by the clothes they wear. The average person in the ancient world did not have colors in their clothing. Most garments were a drab neutral that was discolored by dirt and sweat. Dyed garments, on the other hand, were very expensive, especially scarlets and purples. The source of purple dye came from a combination of extracts from marine snails, which produced a rich pigment, and to this was added something called kermasic acid, which came from an insect, a rare insect in the Middle East, which feeds on the sap of evergreens. And so they would combine the acid and the pigment from these two sources, and they would mix it together. And it took a lot of man hours to produce scarlets and purple dyes. And so purple linens were not only beautiful and cool in the arid Middle Eastern weather, but it represented a person's wealth and importance. It's not hard to see with this in mind why Joseph's brothers were incensed that Jacob gave him a coat of many colors. It could have taken a year's worth of wages to create a garment like that. And this poor man, it says, was not clothed in purple linens, but he was clothed in sores. There's this contrast right from the very beginning of the parable that Jesus wants us to see, this picture of opulent wealth and luxury and this other picture of abject 
poverty and pain. The poor man is clothed in sores, in wounds. The Greek word literally means ulcers. His body is covered in oozing sores, ulcers. And he's laid at the gate of this rich man, which indicates that he was likely disabled. In other words, someone said, where would you like us to take you so you can beg? And so he was laid at the gate of this rich man, which means that if begging at the gate of a rich man didn't produce results, he couldn't just get up and go. He was just laid there, possibly for days and weeks on end. And it says in verse 21 that he desired, he longed to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. If you have money and that's your normal, you're often not aware of how it affects people around you who don't have it or who have much less than you. And it's not always a matter of envy. It's not always a matter of someone with less than you envying you, wanting what you have. But the focus here isn't so much on the beggar, but the obliviousness of the rich man to the hunger and need of someone just 40 to 50 feet away from his front door. If you've got money, you're often not aware of how it may make someone who's around you who doesn't have as much money as you have feel. Jesus is is inviting us into the the feeling and the emotions of this person simply by telling his story, simply by describing his condition of poverty and pain. Night after night, this beggar no doubt watched guests come and go. He heard the clashing of dishes, the clatter of dishes and plates and laughing, and of drinks being refilled, and sat quietly outside with his stomach growling, Hoping, not demanding, but hoping, that someone would just think of him. And what did he want? The rich man's stuff, his house, his inheritance to trade places with him? No. The text says he wanted just crumbs, just scraps. That's all he wanted. And it's no coincidence that dogs came to lick his sores Because dogs sit under the table of their master. Who's got a dog here? Who grew up with a dog? Who wants a dog? All right, so all of you. And you know what your dogs do when they're not in the kennel or they're not outside when you're eating. They sit under your table, and let me tell you something, it's been that way since time began, because that's what dogs do. And invariably, they always get a little something, right? You husbands, right, you love, you know, your wife says, don't feed that dog, and you drop it underneath the table. And so there's this irony here that Jesus wants us to see, that this man who desires crumbs but can't get any is attended to by dogs who even eat better than he does. The dogs eat crumbs from the master's table, and when they're done with that meal, they come and they lick his ulcers. It's a kind of a gut-wrenching scene, if you think about it. And Jesus names this poor man Lazarus. The name Lazarus, not to be confused with Mary and Martha's brother, the name Lazarus means helped by God. The rich man isn't named, but this poor man is given a name by Jesus 
He's given this name. It humanizes him. It humanizes this beggar. And he stands for the countless multitudes of sick and suffering who live on the edge of existence in our world every single day. And what do they long for? Society's crumbs. They long to feel that others care enough just to share a little bit of what they have. They long to feel that someone actually cares that they survive. I don't know if the pain that this beggar experienced was the pain in his stomach or the pain in his heart, knowing that no one cared for him. Lazarus waited and waited quietly and politely for even a gesture that the rich man cared about his survival. You know, the Bible never condemns the rich for being rich. There's a lot of you know, political ideologies that get you know, cross-pollinated in a text like this. Right? Capitalism and Marxism and socialism. And everybody wants to, to circumscribe this parable or Jesus' message for their own political ideology. But the Bible never condemns the rich for being rich. What it does command, not condemn, but what it commands is that rich people recognize how they've been blessed and share what they have. That is ultimately the prevailing message about wealth in the world that we live in, which is often unjust. Because what it requires is that people who have money recognize that what you have is not simply the result of your brains and hard work. That's part of it. But it's also the result of circumstance, of environment, of ethnic heritage, of cultural factors. Which means that you, if you have some money in your pocket, have been blessed by God to be born where you're born, where you're born, in the family you were born in. And the opposite is true often of the poor. Often the poor are not poor due to anything in and of themselves. I heard somebody say, well, the poor need to try harder. It's a scary idea that our hearts would think of, say something like that when we think about the poor, not recognizing that many poor people in the world are in the position they're in because unlike many of us in the Western world, they were born into a circumstance that sets them on a completely different playing field. And this is why last week when Jesus talked about how to use money, he said, take the unrighteous money of this world. He just calls money, the Greek word mammon, meaning possessions and wealth and everything that goes in it. He calls it unrighteous because it belongs to the system, this age, the system of this age. This age's system of injustice, which happens to be the status quo in our world right now. Jesus doesn't say money is evil, but he recognizes that it belongs to an unjust system in a broken and fallen and sinful world where there is inequity and often injustice. And that's not to indict people who have money. It's simply to say, this is what this parable is saying. This is the message throughout all of Scripture, that if you have some money to recognize how you've been blessed and to share it. And that's not the only thing this passage is about. But it's about the idea of what we've been given. We should be filled with compassion that our hearts are motivated to cause us to want to share it with others. This past winter, Maribel and I, my wife, we read uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And um, Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge, if you don't know the story, is the cruel miser who cares only for dollars and cents, right? The most beautiful sound to Ebenezer Scrooge is the sound, the music of the register till opening and closing. 
right? It's music to his ears. And one night, he's visited by his late deceased partner, a man by the name of Jacob Marley. And maybe you've read the book or you've seen pictures or you've seen a modern illustrated or animated you know, rendition of the story. And Jacob Marley is in chains and his, his teeth and his mouth is falling apart. And he's just a miserable looking wretch. And he comes to Scrooge in the dead of night. And Marley has been cursed to roam the earth in chains. And Scrooge, who respects Marley, respected his business practices, he says he's, he's perplexed by, by Jacob Marley's punishment. And he says, but you were so good at business, in his craggly voice. And in agony, Jacob Marley replies, business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. The idea that the true business that he failed at, even though he was good at keeping books and counting money and making money, the real business of caring for your brother being your brother's keeper, he failed at. He's rebuking Ebenezer Scrooge. He's rebuking his former partner for thinking wrongly about what it means to be faithful in business. It's interesting that when Jesus got lost at 12 years old, when his parents visited the temple, they searched for him, frantic like parents would be. And when they found him, what does Jesus say? I must be about my father's business. of the prodigal son, we're meant to see in this parable that it's actually the rich man who is lost. He's the poor one here. He's the one destitute of real wealth. The rich man is in just as much need as Lazarus, if not more, because his need is unseen. He doesn't perceive it. That's, that's a more dangerous place to be when you don't know the need you're in. Someone who is in material need, they know what they need. They feel hunger. They go without basic necessities and needs being met, and their needs are visible. It's not to say that poor people don't need a savior. They do. But often the rich are far more deceived because they're materially satisfied. In fact, I would argue just my own experience in sharing the gospel with people, it's always been far harder to share the gospel with people who are materially satisfied because they think, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm fine. Hey, if you need Jesus, more power to you. You know, you, you, the religion thing is working out for you. That's awesome, man. Good for you, right? I'm good, though. I'm fine. My life is great, right? That is often the challenge. And this is exactly the fulcrum point that this parable, you know, teeters on. This idea this, of those whose need is visible and, and apparent and those whose need is far less, you know, on the surface. And it says in verse 22 that when the, when the poor man died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham, right? Father Abraham. This, the idea is the rich man is a Jew, right? Abraham represents 
right? The father of the faith, the righteous, and he sees Abraham afar off, and guess who's sitting at his side? Guess who's been exalted to a place of honor? Guess who's been exalted to a place of fullness and joy forevermore, everlasting peace and joy and fullness? At the side of Abraham, it's this poor beggar. As I've said before, the theme throughout all of the book of Luke is the great reversal of fortunes. The great reversal. That's what happens in the gospel. That's what begins in the gospel. It's this great reversal. And if you remember back to the beginning of Luke, Mary's Magnificat, when she cries out to the Lord in a song that's like a prayer, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord because he has brought down rulers from their thrones. But has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered his mercy. James 2.5 says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The idea is that this poor man's poverty will not have the last word. Hungry in life, he's filled the ideas in the age to come. And lest we make the mistake of thinking that this is just a simple message of pie in the sky, Jesus is not challenging the structures of this age, and his message is simply, don't worry, when you die, everything will be taken care of. That is not what's happening here. What Jesus is doing is pointing to the realities of, the, of eternity, pointing to the realities of heaven, pointing to the realities of the age to come, and say, and he's saying that this ought to break into the world right now. The realities of the age to come are breaking into this age right now. And the knowledge of what's coming in the age to come, in eternity, When heaven comes down to earth and there is a new heaven and a new earth and the reign and rule of God is made manifest in every corner of the earth is this announcement, this annunciation that things will be made right. This great reversal. This poor man despised by the privileged of the world, he's vindicated by God himself with all of the riches of heaven. And with that, the tables have been turned. Now, now this rich man is the beggar. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Let us not for one single minute doubt that there is a place of judgment for the wicked. Oh, great, the preacher, you know, preaching hellfire and, you know, you're, turn or burn, right? You know, that's how, they, that's how people characterize Christians in the church. Turn or burn, right? You're all going to burn. You know, people on the corner with bullhorns and insensitive so- picket signs and things like that. But that's not the idea. The idea is that God is a just God. God is righteous, and it would be inconceivable that the atrocities of history would not go unanswered by a righteous and holy God. Any good judge would not let injustice stand in his courtroom. 
He lives to uphold justice and at times demonstrates mercy and clemency. It's a vision of God as a judge. Let us not doubt for one single moment that God will let the injustices of history stand, whether they be economic or anything else. Let us not for a moment think that he will not call to account men and women who trampled the innocent and victimized the powerless. It's in our bulletin, and someone mentioned before service started that it was a punchy quote, and I was reluctant about putting it in there, but this is a, there's a great quote by St. Augustine who said, the banquet which the rich man in Christ's parable ate on earth, he digested in hell. The banquet that he ate on earth, he digested in hell. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf argues that the reasons Christians can love their enemies and not repay evil for evil is the fact that one day God will repay the guilty in divine judgment. I mean, honestly, how could God expect us to love oppressive people, people who have mistreated us, cruel and horrible people who have committed atrocities throughout the ages? How can God expect us to love them? But there's this promise, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And God knows who deserves repayment and who doesn't. Because some of the very people right now who are your enemies will one day be your friends. Some of the people right now who oppress you and mistreat you right now will one day, God will turn their hearts and you'll see them in eternity. So God has to be the judge of who deserves punishment. He tells us to love our enemies. The rich man's sins of compassionless greed prevented him from entering into the kingdom. The rich man's man's sins of compassionless greed, not wealth, all right, but compassionless wealth, compassionless greed prevented him from entering into the kingdom. In his book, Alms, Charity, Reward, and Atonement in Early Christianity, David Downs shows that almsgiving was so closely associated with eternal reward that the early Christian thinkers like Polycarp and Clement of Alexandria, Origen and Cyprian, developed a theology of atonement based on almsgiving. The notion that providing material assistance to the needy cleanses or covers sin. Now, that may seem heretical from our viewpoint today because we've got the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and we think that doesn't sound right. But from God's point of view, if you can take a moment... And think about from God's point of view, caring for the poor was the most single embodied act of love. And this is why it says in 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The rich man whose life was characterized by compassionless abundance is now in hell crying out himself, crying out for scraps. What a vivid picture. What a staggering, powerful image. I thought about putting something up on the screen, some illustration or painting, but I think the image we would create in our own mind is far more powerful. And in verse 25, and I'm getting ready to wrap it up here, but in verse 25 he says, Abraham says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
Jesus' comparison of these two people in life, it continues into death. Except now, Lazarus, whose only companion were scavenging dogs, is surrounded by the patriarchs, the heroes of the faith throughout Scripture, Abraham and the prophets. While the rich man who enjoyed this opulence and nightly dinner guests, night after night, is in the lonely torments of Hades. And this is where the lesson finishes and also galvanizes its main theological point. The rich man says to Abraham, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they, have, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The idea that someone comes back from the dead to warn people is found in ancient folklore. I just mentioned the story of a Christmas carol, you know, um, Charles Dickens was not the first one to come up with this idea that those who are dead would come back to give us a warning about the present. This is a very old idea that even goes back to the times of Jesus and before, but Jesus corrects this notion. Sadly, there's no Jacob Marley from the dead in this scenario to warn the rich man's brothers who are still living. What they do have is the Holy Scriptures, If they will not hear God's voice speaking in Scripture, they will not hear even though a man was raised from the dead. Scripture and its message and its authority is the test. It is the gauge. Not even someone's voice coming back from the dead. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't come to convince unbelievers. Who did he appear to? He appeared to the faithful to strengthen them in their faith. He didn't seem to waste his time with the Pharisees and Herod and Pilate. They were gone, out of the the picture. He rises from the dead not to convince people, but to strengthen those whose faith has been grounded in the law and the prophets, in the word of God. What's the point of us seeing that the rich man's fate is sealed? That there is no mending of his ways after life? And finding mercy with God. Scripture says it is appointed to men once to die. And then the judgment. Well here it is. Here's the takeaway. Here is the big idea of this passage. Justice and care for the least among us. The poor and disabled certainly. The less privileged. Our neighbors. Justice and mercy and compassion on the stranger. Helping others survive. It doesn't matter when you're dead. It matters now. Caring for the needy, caring for the poor, caring for the disabled, caring for the hungry, it doesn't matter when you're dead. It doesn't matter in eternity because all those rights will be turned, all those rights will be made, those wrongs will be made right. It matters now. It matters here. And this is the essence of what Jesus teaches us to pray Our Father who art in heaven, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. The idea that the life of heaven, the justice in heaven, is made manifest right now on earth. Lord, your kingdom come. We are kingdom come people. That's what it means to follow Christ. We are the people who are praying and God is working through us that the kingdom, as it's manifested in heaven, comes on earth. That the justice of heaven, the righteousness of heaven, the love of heaven is made manifest on earth. Now. Let's pray.